Courtney. Hey, Sasha. I'm thinking about giving out fruit cereal for Halloween this year. Really? Because they have booberry? No, but that's a good cereal to give out. It's actually because whenever the kids ask trick or treat, I'm going for tricks. It's spoop hour. paranormal comedy podcast that's not about snacks yet yet <laughs> i mean let's be honest it's a little bit it's about a little snacks. bit about snacks when it's we used to record together there are always yeah. more snacks but anyway we are two halloweenies i, I am the halloweeny sasha <laughs> I, am, I, I am the halloweeny known as courtney <laughs> my brain is melty so i don't we're, know how we do this we're, intro <laughs> we're, we're doing, doing our best great is the thing that you need to take away from this is we're, we're doing amazing we're proud of ourselves it's fine <laughs> yeah. Find us on the internet at Spoop Hour on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram is where Courtney puts so many good images of our for our episodes and then also nice little quotes that I really I, I read them again and I'm like, hee hee hee, we're Thank so you. funny. <laughs> you can email us whenever you have any yes. suggestions, questions, stories, whatever, cute pictures of your pets at spoop hour. Oh sorry, spoop hour at gmail.com. At spoop hour at, at gmail.com. Yeah. No, spoop hour at gmail.com. And then also we have a Patreon. So we do. check that out so you can Speaking. keep us in snacks, but also hosted on a yeah. platform and all that. Yeah. And on page, Patreon, you don't get nothing for being a patron. You get bonus content. You get, you get weird stuff comb. that we've clipped out of episodes that yep. didn't fit. You get bonus content, like Courtney Reads Twilight, so you don't have to. Speaking of, I finished Midnight Sun <sighs> a couple days ago. Yeah, we have to, we're going to record that, baby. It is. It's about 400 pages too long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The entire series is about 1,000 pages too long in that it shouldn't exist as a series. <laughs> but also, the series in all its entirety, Twilight was the shortest one, and that one was like 400 pages. Probably 2,600 pages in the OG series. And I read all of them. That is 2,600 too many pages. <laughs> if you want to know why I've been slowly descending into madness over the past year... It's partly because I've essentially been living through my worst nightmare, but it's also partly because I have read 2,600 pages, <laughs> pages of, of Stephanie Meyer's bullshit. <laughs> right. So, so come but check you know that what? out. But, and then eventually we'll do another We Read So You Don't Have To, or Spoop Hour Book Club, where yeah. we all read and we enjoy something. Yes, we, we read and you should too. Yeah, so we'll... Yeah. we'll Anyway, <laughs> Sasha, did anything spooky happen to you this week? You know, I felt like something spooky did happen to me this week, and I've already forgotten it. It doesn't stick with me that hard anymore, except for, well, hormones are spooky. Aren't they always? Oh, I'm on summer break, which is spooky. Yay! Because that school year was 14 years long. Yeah. And I've had one week of summer break, and I'm already like, oh, God, we're going back to school tomorrow. We're not. Yeah. <laughs> we're not. There's, like, this... still a couple weeks of break, but... this. 
whole past year has both been like 14 years long and also 20 minutes long. Yeah. So it both didn't happen and also <laughs> happened so much. So it's a real fun time. Yeah. yeah. And so actually, I guess maybe the spooky thing that did that I can like pinpoint right now that happened to me this week is that I had to I socialized a couple of times in the last two weeks with different Crazy. people and have had to like learn how to I, I feel so stunted. I feel like I don't have any social skills left and it's actually been like a source of big stress where like I say something and then like the rest of the day I'm just like, oh my God, why did I say that? And like, I've always had that feeling. Yeah, but, like, I've always been more, that way, but it's definitely worse it's, now. It's worse now. Like yesterday I like cried in the car coming home from our friend's house because I was like, oh my God, why am I so awkward? And Jack was like, our friends had fun. I was like, no, I'm so weird. <laughs> they, did it. they hate me. <laughs> they hate me. <laughs> but yeah, so the spookiest thing of all, re-entering society. <laughs> Yep. That's spooky. That's fair. How about, how about you? Well, speaking spooky? of re-entering society, I, the spooky thing that happened to me this week, I went to the DMV yesterday. <gasps> because yes, because I, DC is I, starting to do the thing. Yeah, so yeah. I finally was able to get an appointment because they've been basically doing lotto-style appointments mm-hmm. for the past six months, and the DMV has been appointment only, and there's only so many DMV locations, and a lot of people need to go. So it took me six months to get an appointment. Fine, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I go yesterday, and, like, I have had a lot of anxiety in the lead-up because I'm, like, I'm going to get there, and I'm going to be missing something, and then I'm going to have to come back, and mm-hmm. it's going to take another six fucking months. But, no, it was, it was mostly fine. There were a couple, like, standard DMV snafus, and I had a hard time interacting socially with the person helping me. But I have found out the person helping me may not have been a person at all. They may have been an angel from heaven. Oh, I thought you were saying it was going to be a robot. It was a really sophisticated AI. Yes. And I was like, this seems odd. No, because, you know, I went like when I left the house, I had curled my hair yesterday, mostly because it was really hot and humid. So it was just like a puffy Mm -hmm. disaster. And when I left the house, it looked cute. So I'm like, this will probably hold true for the, you know, 20 minutes before I have my appointment. Nope. Because it was very humid. So by the time I got to the DMV, it was just (sighs) nonsense. Whatever. Fine. I was like, fine, I'll take this picture. Who cares? It'll be on my license. So I sit down in the little chair. She's like, take off your mask. You can smile if you want to, or you don't have to, whatever. Do it. So I smile. She takes the picture. She pauses. And in her, like, official, I'm giving DMV instructions voice, the same way she said, okay, and do you have your social security card, your birth certificate, your this, your that? She goes, okay, all right. I'm going to need you to fix your bangs, and then we're going to take that again. (laughs) (laughs) And so she handed me a mirror and she had me fix my bangs. And then she sat me down. And she goes, push your glasses up a little bit. So I push my glasses up a little bit. And she goes, lift your chin up a little bit. And I lift my chin up a little bit. And she goes, there we go. And she goes, you're going to have this photo for eight years. I want to make sure you're happy with it. Oh, my God. So what an angel. That was an angel that I interacted <gasps> with at the DMV. So wow, bless her. her. She oh, my God. an angel from heaven. I have n- never looked so good in a licensed <gasps> photo in my life. Blessings to her for the rest of existence. Yeah. I hope only good things happen to her from mm-hmm. here on in. Same. So, anyway, what are we talking about today, Sasha? In honor of Disney Plus's new show. No, just kidding. Um, but, but <laughs> can you imagine this podcast if we had Disney money? Disney Plus. Oh my god, if we had Disney Plus money. I love Disney, the place. I don't. I don't love Disney, the people in power. Yeah, you don't who love do Disney, love, the corporation. Who I do love is Abigail Disney, who 
She gets calls it. out the Disney company all the time because as as a real Disney, as like a full blo- uh, as a yeah. Disney family member, she calls out their bullshit all the time because she's like we have too much money, take it away. Basically, the people who took over Disney, the Disney company in the early 90s or late 80s, very much of like big wolf on Wall Street like make money for us and our like shareholders or like our, our stockholders rather than like the actual shareholders of the company like the actual employees and the guests and the people who like consume Disney Disney things mm-hmm. and so they like to make things more expensive so they can make more money but they actually don't pay their employees right anyway yes. that's not what we're talking about today we're talking about tricksters yay yay in and a fun way tricksters. the woman at the DMV could have been a trickster yeah because she was just okay. nice and she played the system. So, so sorry, the Disney thing was because Loki is a trickster and I was going to say, oh, there's a Loki in Disney+. Plus. Anyway, general characteristics of tricksters before we go into like our actual examination of some, some big ones. So this is from the text Myth- Mythical Trickster Figures, published in 1997 by Heinz and Doty. They say tricksters must have at least one of the following six traits. One is that they're fundamentally ambiguous and anomalous. Two, they're deceivers and trick players. Three, they're shapeshifters or masters of disguise. Four, they are situation inverters. Five, they are messengers and imitators of the gods. And six, they are will make sacred and or lewd bricoleur, which is French for <laughs> DIY. So basically, they make things that make can stuff. either be sacred or sexy. <laughs> but they, yeah, they, they make things. So some of our commonly known tricksters are the ones that, like, I'm going to list a bunch and you'll probably be like, I know that one. I know that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Loki has a new show on Disney+. Plus, yeah, he's, and it's he's actually really very good. blown up since the Thor movies. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's actually very good. Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson are doing a great job. I'm very proud of them. He's, Loki is a cu- cunning, shape-shifting god, sometimes benefactor, and sometimes foe to the god of Asgard. He's famous as the catalyst for Ragnarok, and basically the precise nature of Loki's being defies clear classification, as there's little detail regarding his mother, but he's at least half-giant on his father's side. I believe we've talked about him before when we talked about did our Norse mythology episode. Yeah. So go check that out. <laughs> then we also have Indra of Indian and Hindu mythology, who is the king of gods and uses tricks and supernatural p- powers to save his position as king. His biggest weapon is the uh, Vajrayuda, uh, a weapon made from the spine bone of Dadichi. And it which brings ultimate destruction with lights and thunder. (laughs) And then Narada is also another Indian and Hindu trickster who travels into any dimension or planet without any permission from any god. He's just saying, I'm going to do what I want. He's an interplanetary messenger who always takes control of the situation by taking advantage of weaknesses. And his ultimate intentions are towards the betterment of mankind. And he's often compared to Hermes of Greek mythology. Another notable one is Dionysus. Hey, hey our feminist broski. Yay, we love him. Eris, the Greek goddess of discord, who is infamous for starting a fight between other goddesses over the apple of discord, which led to the judgment of Paris and ultimately the Trojan War. Yay. <laughs> you know, just trickster things. <laughs> you know, when you're like joking around and then suddenly it escalates beyond your control. And then and there's the like, Trojan War. <laughs> yeah, and you were like, I just wanted to play a fun prank but I guess we're doing this. Yeah, I guess we're doing this. 
That's relatable. There's also Weiwei Koyotl, who is a gender-changing coyote god of music, dance, mischief, and song of pre-Columbian Mexico and Aztec mythology. Being very much a trickster, he is the patron of uninhibited sexuality and often engages against trickery against the gods with camaraderie among mortals. One of the many notable mythological coyote characters of the indigenous people of North America, who are often thought of as, you know, cognates to to people, uh, other characters like Loki, Prometheus, Anansi, my man, Kitsune from Japan, and Reynard the Fox. So very much this cunning character. But what I like is that I, I think I called him he earlier, but really they are they. They, They're, yeah. The gender changing. We love. We we stand a. We stand a gender fluid ruler. Maui, hero from Polynesian folklore, famous for his exploits and trickery, depicted most famously recently as Maui in Moana. Pan, who is a satyr god of shepherds and flocks who plays tricks on people, especially children, for their amusement. Prometheus tricked Zeus and stole fire on behalf of mankind. Susano, who is Amaterasu's brother, god of storms and a trickster in Japanese mythology. His destructive behavior gets him banished from heaven, though he later redeems himself through deeds of heroism. Bugs Bunny, the Pink Panther, Tomcat of Tom and Jerry, Woody Woodpecker. Think about our main kind of cartoon mischievous mascots of the 20th century. I'm sure like even when we think about these, the the six kind of rules for being a trickster, Mm -hmm. the Animaniacs fall in there too. Yakko, Wacko, and Sister Dot. Robert Pattinson, right? The Doctor from Doctor Who. Yes, absolutely. Always a situation inverter, a deceiver, very much into the DIY making up their own solutions. Yes, shapeshift, trick player. Depends on the incarnations, but the Doctor is definitely some kind of trickster. Bill Cipher from Gravity Falls. He's a demon that represents the pyramid with one eye from the U.S. currency. He's the primary antagonist of the series. He has many supernatural abilities. He likes to use them to cause trouble for the human characters of Gravity Falls. And he likes to try to make devilish deals that will always turn out bad for those who take him. He's definitely on the side of like the mean and chaotic tricksters, right? He's not doing it a betterment of mankind. He's kind of doing it to because he's chaotic. He like, wants this to happen, yeah. right? To end my section here, my personal favorite, my best boy, Joker from Persona 5, who is <laughs> <laughs> described literally in the game as a trickster. He is a second-year high school student who's thrown into this place called the Metaverse to change and remove malevolent intent from the hearts of people who are corrupted by like negative power that's usually based on one of the seven deadly sins. He shapeshifts in the Metaverse from being like this kind of normal high school student into being like an actual hero and he can harness the powers of every single known persona which isn't something that other persona users like in his party can do he can basically shift himself to become basically anything any arcana and he wears a mask to hide his true intentions he is very much an anomaly in a highly structured japanese high school and then in the wider society where people are drawn to him because they're like you kind of stand out like what's your deal what what are you doing and he embraces the chaos of the metaverse and he doesn't seem phased at all by it he's thrown into this other place with like all these monsters he's like yes it's fine (laughs) he like immediately is with it because he he's not he's not he's his whole thing is to to mess with the world basically yeah but but he is helpful he's not malicious 
And so that's my general overview of like pop culture tricksters that you've probably yeah. heard of. Obviously, there are more out there. Yeah. I'm sure you can think of, I mean, even within Shakespeare, beyond Puck even, there are a lot of other trickster type characters who, who just like to kind of mess around, like to cause a little mischief, cause a little harm. I would like to think of myself as a trickster if I didn't have so much anxiety. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> I, that's, I think, the trope to which we all aspire is mm-hmm. whom's among us doesn't want to be a little bit of a trickster. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay, so this all comes from Scientific American, Wikipedia, Folklore Thursday, Britannica.com, Mythology.net, Myths.E2BN.org, and QATR.US. We gotta talk about Anansi. Yeah! So, Anansi originates with the Akan people of what is now Ghana and the Ivory Coast, and he's a crucial folkloric figure in West African, Caribbean, and African-American tradition. So the tales of Anansi spread in part due to the trading of enslaved peoples. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the places you see the Anansi stories pop up follow, Mm -hmm. like, the Atlantic slave trade route Mm -hmm. because those who were being enslaved brought with them their oral traditions. So it is fitting that we're talking about Anansi so close to Juneteenth, mm-hmm. and we'll get into a little bit more why here in a second. And we've talked about Anansi before, right? We have. Well, uh, most recently, I think, when we were talking about the butt nut, right? Yes, because yes. there, there was a story about him and coconuts. Yeah. Anansi's name is derived from the Akan language word for spider, so he is one of the only spiders that I am just... <laughs> No holds barred, a big fan of. Yeah, uh, this is like, yeah, this is the only spider, really. Yeah, I'm not trapping him under a glass. I mean, I might. He's pretty big <laughs> in a lot of stories, but I might be like, can we please not? And also, hopefully, he tell won't me about your exploits. Also, yeah, I have if many you questions. Could just be on the other side of this door. Yeah, I have a lot of questions, <laughs> but I can't be near you when you are a five foot tall spider. I am sorry. So. Some folklorists speculate that the spider was chosen as the representative body for this trickster spirit because of their ability to literally design their own reality via constructing their webs. And because they epitomize flexibility, self-dependence, and adaptability. Like, you've seen spiders build webs wherever. I had to move one the other day because it had built a nest in my (gasps) fucking driver's side door handle. And I was like, buddy, you're not going to get any flies in here. I'm going to stick my hand in you and it's going to bum me the fuck out. Let's get you over here so you can climb this tree. So they're very adaptable. They're super flexible. They're very independent. So it kind of makes sense that if you're thinking about what animal form a trickster would take, you would consider a spider. Spider, yeah. Their use of webs shows strategy, which is a key element for tricksters. Like, Mm -hmm. if you're going to be a trickster, you need to have some degree of strategy, otherwise you're not going to be a very effective trickster. And their independence could contribute to Anansi's tendency towards selfishness. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever spent any time watching a spider, you know they can be ruthless towards prey, because their whole thing is they wrap them up and then they Mm -hmm. suck the blood out while you're still alive. That's pretty ruthless. Yeah. And they're also very calculated in their movements. Like, you can see the little gears turning in their tiny spider minds, and it's like, oh, you know what's up. You've got a plan. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Anansi also plays a crucial folkloric role known as the Universal Law of Polarity, which originated from Tehuti in ancient Egypt. This says that even larger-than-life folkloric figures like Anansi and other spirits contain a duality of positive traits, Mm -hmm. like being smart, creative, and adaptable, like Anansi is, and negative traits, selfishness, ruthlessness, and a tendency towards mischief. Mm. So this is kind of the idea that 
even if you are a larger-than-life folk hero, Mm -hmm. contained within you are these dualities. You're not going to be everything in one bucket. So, and this is something that you see in a lot of folklore, even when we're not talking about tricksters, like, even like Greek gods and goddesses, Mm -hmm. there's always that very human element of, yes, there's a lot of good characteristics, but there's also a lot of, like, there's pettiness, there's selfishness, there's greediness, there's all of these things that are a very human thing where, you know, you're not always going to be all one thing or all the other. And even the ones that are villains are also going to have that, like, element of goodness to them. We contain multitudes. We contain, it's yeah, it's Mm -hmm. we contain multitudes, the folklore version. Yeah. So that's the universal law of polarity. So, like a trickster in Anansi stories, he often uses these traits to cause trouble or to try and outwit his opponents. Mm -hmm. So his parents are Asaseya, who is the earth, so Mother Earth, and Nyame, the sky, So he's often depicted as a true representation of all things on heaven and earth. So kind of why Anansi pops up so much is because he's like this all-encompassing figure that has kind of one foot in the sky. Mm. Well, four feet in the sky, four feet on land. Because he's a spider. spider. So. (laughs) And because he has the ability to shape shift like a lot of tricksters, his, from his original shape of spider, he often appears as a human as he leads people on puzzling journeys. So in a lot of his stories, he is in his human form. So you have kind of like, he is the most human human because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's of the sky, he's of the earth, he's good, he's bad, mm-hmm. he's clever, but sometimes falls for his own nonsense. Like, he, he he's got it all. Yeah. So... I have some Anansi stories that I'm going to tell because I love Anansi stories. They're very fun and they teach you stuff. And, you know, he's a crafty little bugger. Yeah. And I love it. So in one Anansi exploit, he gathered all the wisdom of the world and put it into a calabash, which is the kind of gourd that has like two balls stacked on top of each other. Mm -hmm. That kind of gourd. So he takes all the wisdom of the world, he crams it into that gourd to keep it away from humans because he was like, this is extremely important information. Mm -hmm. I don't want this getting out, getting this into bad hands that can't be trusted. I'll keep it all for myself. Right. Unfortunately... A gourd is not the best vessel to store all of the wisdom of the universe. So it kept spilling out in little chunks. Like, a little bit of knowledge would get out here, mm. a little bit of wisdom would get out there. And finally, Anansi learned a very valuable lesson. Knowledge is best shared and is not meant for only one person, even a trickster god like himself, to hold. Aww. See? Yeah. That's, what a good lesson. It's a good, it's a good lesson. So, did you know... Without Anansi, we might not have this podcast. Really? Yes, because Anansi is credited with bringing stories to the world in another one of his adventures. So, Anansi hour. It, welcome to Anansi hour. <laughs> Bringing the bell with all eight of my hands. <laughs> Yuck. As the story goes, Anansi looked around and he liked the world, but he was like, it's kind of boring. Yeah. And he knew his father, Nyame, the sky god, hoarded all the stories in a box in the sky. So he's like, all right, I'm going to go ask my dad if I can have the story box so we can tell each other stories and have a good time. Mm -hmm. So he spun a thread into the sky and he traveled up, first trying to simply ask his dad for the stories so that people could learn from their wisdom. And Yame was like, no. But he liked that Anansi asked. So he was like, okay, because you were so bold as to approach me to ask me to give up this box of stories that I feel very protective over... I'm going to give you what he believed was an impossible task. And he's like, if you do this task, I will give you the stories. If you fail, the stories stay with me. Mm -hmm. So Nancy's like, okay. So what is the task? And Nancy was to bring Yame the four most fearsome creatures in creation to him. 
Then, and only then, would Nyame give Anansi the stories to do with what he wished. Mm. So, Anansi sits his little spider butt down, and he starts thinking about how best to tackle Onini, the huge python, Osebo, mm-hmm. the hungry leopard, the deadly Maboro hornets, and the fairy Moesha, famed for being invisible, proud, greedy, and quick to anger. Same, mm. girl. <laughs> Same. And, of course, he realized the only way he was going to succeed in his mission was with trickery. Yeah. So, he went to Anini the Python's lair first, and he pretended to get into an argument. After several minutes of Anansi standing outside of his lair going, is not, and is so, Onini was curious and slithered out to see what was up. Anansi told the snake that he and his wife had been arguing about a stick. Anansi said that the stick was longer than Onini, while his wife said, no, Onini is for sure longer. And Onini was like, oh, no problem. I'll just stretch out to my full length. You can put the stick next to it. We're easily going to figure out who's longer. Mm -hmm. And Anansi was like, yeah, but it's probably going to be difficult for you to stretch all the way out. How about I tie you to the stick and then we'll see that you're fully extended. And Onini's like, totally. That makes sense, bro. And thus Onini got captured because he was tied to a stick. So (laughs) fearsome beast number one. Check. Next, we have Osebo, the Hungry Leopard, renowned for his incredible strength. Anansi went pretty basic on this one, and he Bugs Bunny-style dug a big hole. The next morning, he found Osebo trapped in the pit. From what I could tell from the version of the story that I read, he didn't, like, cover up the pit or anything. It was just a pit. And apparently Osebo was like, what's the deal with this pit? And that was that. (laughs) So, Osebo goes in the pit. So Anansi's like, oh, you need some help getting out of the pit. So he spun a web across it. And he was like, hey, Osebo, I bet you can't use your strength to climb out using this web. And Osebo was like, hey, fuck you. I totally can. So he started climbing. But the more he climbed, the more he got stuck in the web. Because that's what happens when you get stuck in a spider web. It's sticky. So he kept moving and struggling and moving and struggling. And then he just got too tangled. He couldn't move anymore. Fucking Anansi. What a a lad. Check. Two out of four. (laughs) We're just flying through them. Next, we have the Maboro Hornets. So this is obviously a big group of stuff. I don't know if you've ever been around hornets or wasps. Um, They are mm -mm. fucked up little assholes. Mm -hmm. Like, they will fuck you up. They remember faces. It sucks. Yeah. To tackle them, Anansi once again went to his favorite tool, the gourd. Yeah. And he cut a small hole in a gourd, and then he made a clay plug for the small hole. So then he very carefully gathered water in a large leaf and tossed half of the water on himself and half on the hornet's nest, which ruined it. So the hornets fly out and they're like, what the fuck? Why is our nest wet? Now we got to build a new goddamn nest. We're going to fucking kill you. And Anansi was like, oh, my God, it's raining. It's the rainy season. It's come early. You got to take cover because the rains are going to get you. And they were like, oh, no. But he's like, hey, don't worry about it. I have this gourd. Y'all can just hang out in this gourd and wait out the rains and I'll take care of it. And they were like, thanks, bro. So the first hornet flew in and then all the other hornets flew in after the first guy went in. And then he put the little clay plug in the hole. And just like that. The Maboro Hornets, check. Three out of four. I, I wanted to know where you're going when you're like, and he took half the water and splashed it on himself. I, I was like, hmm. When <laughs> I read that, I was like, this is a confusing plan. I'm not sure why he needs to be wet. And then I'm like, oh, he's playing. He wants to tell he's, them. He's it's a step ahead of us. Yep. I thought I was smart. Anansi's smarter. You're not Anansi smart. Mm-mm. And now he has the last creature, the devious fairy Moatia. Conveniently, Anansi knew that Moatia liked to snack on yam paste, so he crafted a gum baby, 
placed a bowl of yam paste in front of it, then stuck a piece of web to its gum baby head and hid. Moatia approached, saw the yam paste, and asked the gum baby if she could have some. Using his little bit of web, Anansi made the gum baby nod, so then Moatia dug in. She was like, sweet, yam paste, om nom 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 nom. When she had finished the paste, she thanked the gum baby. But this time, Anansi did not make the gum baby move. Annoyed, Moatia thanked the gum baby again, but still it did not acknowledge her. Now enraged, Moatia smacked the gum baby, but her hand got stuck because it was made out of gum. gum. <laughs> so then she hit it with her other arm, oh, no. and that one got stuck too. So she kept hitting it and hitting it and struggling to get free until all of her limbs were snared. <laughs> if this sounds familiar, and we'll get into it more later, this is likely the roots of one of the many super problematic parts in Song of the South. Mm. Like I said, we're going to get into this in a hot second. So wow, I did not expect Anansi and Briar Rabbit to... Mm. Just you wait. Mm-mm. I went down a literal rabbit hole. So, all four creatures, check. You have gum fairy, done. Hornets in a gourd, check. Web leopard, nailed it. And fucking snake tied to a stick, donezo. So Anansi brings all four creatures to his father, and Yame was like, all right, you got me. I didn't think you would do this. But true to his word, he gave him the box containing stories. And that is how stories came to the world. Wow. So thanks, Anansi. Thanks, Anansi. (laughs) But like any good trickster, Anansi doesn't just use his powers for the benefit of mankind. He is often just looking to enrich himself. So a lot of his stories are trying to teach both children and anyone who listens to them Mm -hmm. important lessons about, like, being a good member of your community Mm -hmm. and not, like, a little selfish shit. Yeah. So, one example. Once upon a time, Anansi had prepared himself some food. As he sat down to enjoy his meal, Turtle knocked on the door. Oh. Turtle could smell the food, and he was hoping to partake. Anansi reluctantly agreed, because he didn't actually want to share, but he didn't have a reason to turn Turtle away. So he's Mm. like, yeah, okay, you can have some of my food. But before Turtle could sit down to eat, Anansi said, uh, you need to wash your hands, they're super dirty. And I put on my notes, turtle feet, question mark, question mark, question mark, because turtles don't have hands. <laughs> but like, his, his turtle ends of his legs, he needed to wash those, they were dirty. So Turtle left, washed his hands slash turtle feet in the river, then came back, only to find Anansi had already started eating. Before he could tuck in, once again, Anansi said, you still need to wash your hands. They're really dirty and you can't eat with dirty hands. So Turtle left again, goes to the river, washes his turtle hands slash feet. And this time he very carefully only stepped on the grass to avoid any dust, any dirt. He was like, I'm only going to step on the grass, then I can finally eat. And he gets back to Anansi's house and found Anansi had been eating this whole time, and he had only left Turtle a tiny morsel of food. Oh, no. So even though Turtle was tired and hungry, he didn't bother eating the food, but he did invite Anansi to join him for lunch another day because he decided he had to pay it forward. Mm. When that day dawned, Anansi went to Turtle's house, which was located at the bottom of a river. So Anansi tries to dive into the river, But he's too light to sink into the water. If you've ever seen a spider on water, they're, you know, they can handle it. They they don't move very well, but they don't sink is the crucial part. So Anansi keeps trying to get down into the river, and it's not working. So finally, he puts on a jacket, and he fills the pockets with stones. So now he's weighted down. He goes to the bottom of the river. He finds Turtle's house. Knock, knock, knock. I'm here. Let's eat lunch. 
So he goes inside, and as the food was served, Turtle said, um, actually, could you please remove your jacket? We, in our custom, we don't eat with jackets on, so it's, like, super rude. I just need you to take yours off. And then Nancy's like, oh, yeah, totally, no problem, bro. Takes the jacket off. Whoop! floats to the top of the river and he just stayed there and watched turtle enjoy the meal alone oh so as mentioned before anansi folklore spread out of africa as enslaved people kept that oral tradition going yeah and it may have evolved once it got to america so we're going to talk about the ways in which it evolved here in a second in the meantime do you want to talk to me about something yeah so puck or Robin Goodfellow, mm-hmm. from most notably from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, where he plays tricks on a group of humans who stumble into a forest. We know this. He has that final monologue that explains the nature of tricksters, right? Yeah. You know, Shakespeare, Shakespeare put him on the map. Yes. But he's actually his own notable character from other English, Old Norse, Old Swedish, and Icelandic folklore. The earliest reference to Robin Goodfellow cited by the Oxford English Dictionary is actually 1531. Midsummer Night's Dream was a little like the late 1590s. Mm-hmm. So predated by at least 60 years. Yeah. So Anthony Munday mentions Robin Goodfellow in his play The Two Italian Gentlemen in 1584 and in Scialthia or A Shadow of Truth in 1598. Shakespeare may have also had access to Louis Lencor like Lekinor's translation of the Spanish Mandeville of Miracles or the Garden of Curious Flowers from 1600, which was a translation of Antonio de Tor Quemadas Jardin Flores Curiosas. <laughs> um, <laughs> so lots of other literature with Puck basically was happening in the 1500s. So a notable passage from the Garden of Curious Flowers describes this mischievous spirit, Robin Goodfellow, and says, Many of them without doubt are forged, and many also true, for these kinds of spirits are far more familiar and domestical than others, and for some causes to us unknown, abide in one place more than in another, so that some never almost depart from some particular houses, as though they were proper, their proper mansions making in them sundry noises, rumors, mockeries, gods and jests without doing any harm at all. They answer to those that call them and speak with certain signs, laughter and merry gestures, so that those of the house come at last to be so familiar and well acquainted with them that they fear them not at all. So basically that when pucks live in your house, it actually isn't that bad. Like they'll play mm-hmm. tricks on you, but you get accustomed to them and they usually stay in one place. I almost feel like this is like a friendly poltergeist, you know? Yeah. But Or it's it's like all of the like gnomes and stuff, particularly around the holidays, where it's like you just set a bowl of warm milk out for them and yeah. then they're just gonna hang out and they're not gonna mess anything up. Exactly. But yeah. If they had free power to put in practice their malicious desire, we should find these pranks of theirs not to be jests, but earnest indeed, tending to the destruction of both our body and soul. But as I told you before, this power of theirs is so restrained and tied that they can pass no farther than to jests and gods. And if they do any harm or hurt at all, it is certain very very little as by experience we daily see. So basically, if they do want to harm you, like, it's not going to be the worst thing. So thinking about on the poltergeist side, they will yeah. fuck you up, right? A puck it, will, like, kick you in the shin and be like, nah. And he'll be like, yeah, ah. it's, it's, 
It's like what maybe an old wives' tale about daddy long legs spiders, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, their venom could really fuck you up, but their fangs are too weak to puncture your skin. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, that, exactly. A lot yeah. of spiders this episode. A lot, lot of, lot of, uh, lot of, a lot of extra legs. Ex- well, <laughs> I'm trying to. This is me trying to be like a lot of hot air, a lot of like strength, yeah, and being of, like, I'm going to hurt you, talk. but then like you just kind of push them with your finger away, and they're like, nah, no, and can't get them. Yeah, so. <laughs> Basically, pucks, if they like you, they might do minor housework for you, like quick little needlework, hemming your pants, you know, fixing holes in your clothes, maybe butter churning even. But things that can be undone in a moment if you displease them. So, like, then they'll unhem your pants and they will melt the butter. <laughs> oh, unhem your pants. Right? Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, I own, like, genuinely, I own four pairs of pants and two of them are pajama pants. So I'm like, do your fucking worst. <laughs> do your fucking worst. He also th- likes little gifts, like a glass of milk or a little sweet. Who, who doesn't like? Who doesn't like a little, little glass of gifts? Milk? But also, didn't you say he pops up in Swedish folklore? He does, but okay. I d- yeah. Because that reminds me of the Nisei Tomte or Tomtu, yeah. which we've talked about in the Christmas episode. Yeah. That's gnome specifically, where it's like you leave them out a little bowl of porridge or they'll kill your cattle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, if, if, if you don't give little Puck a little snack, if you don't give them yeah. little a treat. Yeah, Puck can have little a salami as a yeah. treat. It, he will cause problems. <laughs> yeah. But again, not major problems, but he'll, he'll, sh- he'll let you know that he's annoyed. But see, here's the thing. Pucks are known to be inherently lonely creatures, and they just Aww. want to make friends. Like, that's their hope, as always. They want to make friends. I just want to make friends, but also have my friends leave snacks out for me. Right. So it's like, I just, I, I just want us to get along, basically. Yeah. So Shakespeare's Puck in Midsummer basically is what revived interest in Puck in the late 1590s, after its like, kind of initial inclusion in like the uh, early 1500s and then mid-1500s. Mm-hmm. So other notable post-Shakespeare appearances of Puck include the late 17th century ballad, the merry mad pranks of Robin Goodfellow, where he inspires night ter- terrors in old women, but also le- helpfully cards their wool while they're asleep. Oh. He'll lead travelers astray, shapeshift into animals, and do other mischief. Like, sometimes, yeah, basically uh, harassing girls and <laughs> making them fall out of their beds, that kind of thing. Sure. There, he was also in Ben Jonson's Love Restored in 1612, John Milton's Allegro, uh, Le- Le- Allegro in 1645, where he's described as not small and sprightly, but more near to a green man or Harry Woodwose. Mm-hmm. And that one includes a 1939 illustration that actually shows him drawn a little bit like Pan with cloven hooves and goat horns. He's also referenced in an 1856 speech by Karl Marx, where he said, In the signs that bewilder the middle class, the aristocracy, and the poor prophets of regression, we recognize our brave friend Robin Goodfellow, the old mole that can work the earth so fast that uh, worthy pioneer the revolution. So basically, Puck, (laughs) Robin Goodfellow is the mascot of the revolution. I love it. Puck says viva la revolution. He's also a recurring Shakespearean character in the 90s Disney animated series that we have recently talked about, Gargoyles. (laughs) Where he's a The one that taught us that all billionaires are bad. Right. Abab. Abab. (laughs) (laughs) But he is a bit of an antagonist for the Gargoyle characters through his mischief, but he can also be mischievously helpful. So he's not, like, the big bad or anything. It's just more like he likes to get in their way. Yeah. And so, 90s Disney animated series Gargoyles (laughs) makes a comeback to Spoop Hour. (laughs) 
And so that's just a little bit of Puck. I know Midsummer is like your favorite Shakespeare play. It's Um, one of them. Yeah, it's definitely up there. Yeah. All right. So tell me about this thing that bummed you out. Okay, so this is this was a fascinating connection that I had never made, but then when I thought about it, it made a lot of sense, and then I went down a sad rabbit hole, and now here I am. So I mentioned that Anansi folklore, once it got to America, kind of evolved. Mm-hmm. What it evolved into was a rabbit. So you said, oh, weird, that Anansi story is a lot like Br'er Rabbit. That's because Anansi morphed into Br'er nay brother rabbit. Mm-hmm. So... Br'er Rabbit may have originated from our guy Anansi, combined with a South African folktale about a hare sent by the moon to preach to the people on Earth, but the hare trickily swapped some words out, so he preaches the opposite of what the moon told him to do, so the moon gets mad. That's- a lot of Br'er Rabbit stories are just Anansi stories in, in a modified setting with slightly different villains or people being tricked. So a lot of the original Anansi stories became Br'er Rabbit stories. So... Just as a side really quick, that's really interesting that a rabbit comes from the moon in this folklore in America mm-hmm. when there's the whole rabbit moon thing in Eastern cultures yes. as well. So the rabbit moon thing, that rabbit was from South Africa. Yeah. But there are, there, I was reading an article in Scientific American that was just about like the folkloric figure of the hare mm-hmm. and most of them weren't tricksters, but a lot of it was talking about like, Eastern folklore mm-hmm. hairs being closely involved with the moon. And so just in South Africa, it has the spin of the hair then like pulled a fast one mm. and the moon was like, Bruh. and so the, the moon ended up getting mad and like punching him in the face. And that's why hairs have that split lip. Oh. So that was the point of the South African folklore. That's but interesting. That got kind of combined with the Nancy. And so now you have Br'er Rabbit. Sure. So, Br'er Rabbit's defining characteristic is his ability to use his wits to outsmart his larger opponents, namely Br'er Fox, Br'er Wolf, and Br'er Bear. And this possibly contributed to his staying power in the oral tradition of enslaved people. Br'er Rabbit essentially constantly makes the point that just because they're big and in power doesn't mean they're smart or good at what they're doing. And so smaller, weaker forces that have the ability to use their brains are able to get the upper hand. So you can see why this is popular with enslaved people. Mm-hmm. One such story sees Br'er Rabbit getting caught by Br'er Fox with intent to eat him. Thinking quickly, Br'er Rabbit started to beg Br'er Fox, not asking him not to eat him, but instead saying, please, whatever you do, don't throw me in that briar patch. That would be the worst fucking thing you could do. Just don't do it. Mm-hmm. And Br'er Fox was like, whatever, I don't care. You know what? I'm going to roast you alive. And Br'er Rabbit was like, thank God, just as so long as you don't throw me in that briar patch, we are kosher. And then Br'er Fox was like, oh, okay, I don't actually have any, like, tinder, so I can't roast you alive. So I'm going to drown you. And he's like, fine by me, just so long as you don't throw me in that fucking briar patch. I am not playing. I hate that thing. Whatever. But there wasn't any water. So Br'er Fox is like, what if I just skin you alive? And once again, Br'er Rabbit is like, totally cool, bro. Just do not put me in that fucking briar patch. And so finally, Br'er Fox starts thinking. And he's like, you know, I want to do the worst thing I can to this Br'er Rabbit who's been making my life miserable the past couple of weeks. I should really throw him in this briar patch because it sounds like he really doesn't want to go in this briar patch. Yeah. So grabs Br'er Rabbit by the legs, chucks him into the middle of the briar patch. And so he waits to hear Br'er Rabbit cry out in pain and be scared and be upset and so he can relish it. Mm-hmm. Only to hear some rustling, then Br'er Rabbit's voice say, I was born in that briar patch, didn't you know? <gasps> So this is kind of your classic, like, again, just because they're big and in power doesn't mean they're smarter or good or better than you. Right. 
So, how did folk hero throwing off the shackles of your big dumb oppressors become cringingly ensnared with racism? This is the rabbit hole I went down because I've spent most of my adult life whenever I hear the words Br'er Rabbit being like, ooh, gotta, mm, mm. racism. Mm-hmm. And so it was new for me to think about. It was genuinely originally an oral tradition that began with enslaved people and a way to keep that part of their culture alive was to trade these stories about Br'er Rabbit, which was just really encouragement for being like, you know, we're small and we don't have power, but we can use our fucking brains and they're just big dumb oppressors. Right. So, how did that get so entangled with racism? Song of the South, baby! (sighs) Wow, there's so much Disney in today's episode, and not in a good way. No, this is why, when you were like, we gotta get that Disney Plus money, I'm like, Like, they're maybe not gonna want to give it to us after I'm done with them. (laughs) Like, you said, I'm doing trickster hairs, and I was like, ah, yes, Briar Rabbit, but for some reason, like, did not... Yep, connect those You know why? Because there's there's that little hole in my head where Mm -hmm. I put stuff I don't want to think about, (laughs) and Song of the South is the thing that I don't like to think about. So Because it's super fucking problematic, and that's why Splash Mountain is getting a reskin. Yes. (laughs) So, Br'er Rabbit was committed to the page by Joel Chandler Harris. So if you were sitting there thinking, well, these Br'er Rabbit stories don't sound bad, they don't sound racist, they sound like these are for the people who are telling them, like... What could be bad about that? You can thank Joel Chandler Harris, a white man writing for white audiences, Mm. for ruining it for everyone. Mm. Because he was writing a serial for a newspaper in the 1870s. Now, just contextually, in America, slavery wasn't fully ended until the mid-1860s. So you can see why he was already setting himself up for failure, writing in the 1870s, being like, I got this as a white guy who spent a lot of favorable time on plantations and was born in 1848 and probably think it's cool to own people. So the serial featured Uncle Remus, and this is something that was not present in the Br'er Rabbit original stories. Uncle Remus was a former slave, and he was the narrator who eventually starred in Uncle Remus, his songs and his sayings, the folklore of the old plantation published in 1881. Mm. Uncle Remus spoke in a dialect that was Harris's interpretation of how black people from the Deep South spoke at the time. So again, this is a white guy writing for white audiences, and he's trying to commit to the page how he thinks black people sound in the 18-fucking-70s. And Harris actively made it worse by saying his stories were, quote, the first graphic pictures of genuine Negro life in the South. So he's basically appointed himself the spokesperson for a group of marginalized people for whom he does not speak. He has never been an enslaved person. He's never spent any great length of time with them. Mm -mm. He's a white guy who's led a pretty middle-class white guy life who has decided, I can tell these stories better than the people who they are for, and who they are by. (laughs) Which is interesting that that hasn't gone away even in 2021. Yes, it absolutely hasn't. It was just, this was like peak, Peak. worst possible time. I I just hear this and I'm like, why does this sound familiar? And it's like, because it still happens now. But it just feels so much worse. I think about like in, I guess this would be like 50 years later with Zora Neale Hurston actually Mm -hmm. going and like properly collecting oral tradition stories to write them down. That Mm -hmm. he did it not the right way. Yes. He should have waited 50 years for Zora. (laughs) Yes. And then he should have said, Zora, 
These are your stories to tell. I, a white guy who doesn't know what the fuck I'm talking about, am going to take several seats, and then while you do the work, I'm going to amplify it so other white people listen. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Harris claimed he heard these stories in Georgia and that Br'er Rabbit's real name was Riley. None of those things are true. No. So he basically, like, as far as I could tell, did not actually talk to anybody who was practicing this oral tradition. Mm-mm. He just, like, probably heard them third hand wrote him down, and was like, I'm the go-to expert on this. God damn it. Later, folklorist Florence Bear analyzed the story included in Harris's Uncle Remus stories and found that 140 of them had roots in African stories, so that's pretty good. 27 had European origins, and 5 had Native American origins, mostly from Cherokee tales of trickster rabbits. So he just kind of took a hodgepodge of folklore and was like, I'm going to put them all in this book. Mm. And then none other than Walt Disney got a hold of the Uncle Remus stories and created (sighs) Song of the South in 1946 based on them. So when I say Harris is to blame for it, he wrote the work upon which Song of the South was. Mm -hmm. I never realized that Song of the South was based on a book. I just thought it happened in a vacuum of racism. But no, the call was coming from inside the racist house in the form of this book Mm -hmm. that started out as a newspaper serial. So... Song of the South did not shy away from the worst bits of the Uncle Remus stories. Instead Mm -mm. of just being like, what if we just tell stories about this rabbit who outsmarts people? It instead, as cultural historian Jason Sperb describes it, it's one of Hollywood's most resiliently offensive racist texts. Mm -hmm. Which is saying something considering how long Hollywood has been around. Right. So... Some of the worst of it, obviously, I'm not going to go into this a ton. I've never seen Song of the South. I have no intention to see well, it. Well, and here's the thing. You've never seen Song of the South because D- Disney's tried to erase it. If you try yes. to find it streaming anywhere, you can't find it. We haven't seen it, and we don't want to see it, but part of it is also that Disney is trying to tamp it down. It's, and not in the, we fucked up and we want to recognize our mistake right. and make sure it doesn't happen again. In the, la la la, we didn't do it, don't right. worry about it, la 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 way. They're not trying to, like, you know, put out, like, a a documentary featurette about, Mm -hmm. like, why Song of the South is problematic and what's wrong with this, you know, racist story that it's based off of, what was wrong with the racist characters and tropes in it, and having a featurette, uploading it to Disney+, and letting people, like, educate themselves about Song of the South, instead saying, we're just going to pretend it didn't exist, even though we all know it exists. Very quickly going over some of the worst bits, why Song of the South is such a problematic racist nightmare. Mm -hmm. It relies heavily on the classic benevolent master slash friendly slave relationship. Mm -hmm. So even though Song of the South is set in the antebellum period, so after the Civil War has ended, Mm -hmm. Uncle Remus is depicted as a freed man who, in the context of the movie, a seven-year-old white boy comes to the plantation where he lived, that he lives near, and Uncle Remus keeps telling him these stories And so another of the tropes that it relies on is the magical Negro, Mm -hmm. because he's teaching this little white boy how to behave and how to overcome his struggles by telling him these stories, because obviously white people can't do that for themselves. Someone, usually a person of color, has to do the heavy lifting. Yep. Which is something we still see in 2021. Pew, pew, pew. (laughs) So you also have the use of the tar baby tale. So Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, this is clearly can be traced back to the gum baby Anansi story. Mm -hmm. But what makes it problematic, because I was reading an interview with a black Disney animator from way back in the day, who was like, 
the intent of depicting the tar baby wasn't necessarily them trying to be racist. They were just trying to kind of translate the gum baby into a more modern context. But they used a word that has historically been negatively used to describe black children. Mm -hmm. It ends up using this super uncomfortable term, and thus that's why it gets bogged down in it. So a lot of historians who have the ability to speak to this better than I can, because I'm a person who did, you know, 20 minutes of internet research and not being an expert. It's not the worst part of Song of the South, but what makes it bad is because of the term that they use. There's also a novel called Tar Babies by Toni Morrison. It came out right before Beloved. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So that's where the issue comes. The the issue isn't with the content of the story Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, there's this sticky fake kid that you get tangled in when you hit it. Mm -hmm. The problem is... Again, social context. Social context. And basically, it was just an overall nonstop parade of racist cliches about the antebellum South, mm-hmm. where it's like, everything's okay now. We used to own people, but don't worry about it. Yay! Right. It's kind of like, I mean, the the thing we're dealing with in, well, across America with the renaming of buildings and streets mm-hmm. and statues and all of that that were put up in, to well, basically to, to scare people of color into, mm-hmm. you know, submission basically but also being like hey but you know like this is a long time ago it's fine now like we can just yeah don't don't worry about it it's like no it's it's still a problem like Like, it's great that juneteenth is a federal holiday it is long overdue but that doesn't solve any problems needs to go hand in hand with police reform it needs to go hand in hand with expansion of the voting rights act it needs to go hand in hand with all of these other large thorny societal issues you can't just slap a new federal holiday and be like, our work here is done. Racism is over. Right, it's not. Like, There's still you know, a lot of hard Undoing work the harm do. from the war on drugs and all of that. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. There's a, there's a lot left to do. It is a baby step in the right direction. There's still more to do. And then just to close, as Sasha said, this is one of the only Disney movies not to appear on Disney Plus yeah. because they are trying to erase its existence. So yeah, that is Br'er Rabbit. I did not know that Br'er Rabbit was genuinely just, it's a Nazi, but in a new form. Yeah, I didn't know but, that either. That's really interesting. Yeah, so mm-hmm. keeping the oral traditions alive, you gotta yeah. love it. Also, but it's become ensnared with this big yucky thing because white people got their stupid white people paw prints all over it. Also, one one thing about like the absence of any kind of apologies or rectification or just any dialogue from Disney about Song of the South meant that a lot of people last year didn't know that Splash Mountain was based on Mm -hmm. Song of the South. And when they said that Splash Mountain was getting a new skin from uh, the characters from Princess and the Frog, people were like, but but what about Briar Rabbit and Briar Fox and Briar Bear? And people were like, do you know what that's from? And people were like, yeah, that's from something? They they like legitimately thought that it was a Disneyland, Disney World exclusively created thing when it wasn't because Disney really wants to be like, we didn't do anything wrong. We've never done, done anything, anything wrong, wrong in our, our lives. lives. Yeah. Can we have some of your money, please? Exactly. So, yeah, and that's, that's I think, what bums me out the most about what happened to Br'er Rabbit getting mm-hmm. entangled with Song of the South is because this was a way for people who had been stolen from their native lands mm-hmm. to keep some of their culture alive. They had these stories that they could tell each other, and in that small, tiny way, a bit of their culture still existed when they were existing in a space that was actively trying to crush it out of them. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was that culture that was trying to crush it out of them got a hold of it completely bastardized it and ruined it Mm -hmm. and so that's that's really the but we could have had this like folkloric 
oral tradition of this trickster hair, that really bums me out. Yeah. As a person who loves spooky stories and loves folklore. It sucks, man. It fucking blows. Anyway, tell me something happy. Last one. (laughs) Keeping with the animal motif. We went from spiders to rabbits to now we're going to foxes. So kitsune are from Japanese folklore, and they are described as tricksters. So basically... Yeah, like I said, Susano earlier, Kappa, like there are a lot of tricksters in Japanese folklore, but Kitsune is going to be definitely like the the main trickster. Yeah. So they have basically no care for the concept of right or wrong. Stories tell of Kitsune playing tricks on overly proud samurai or greedy merchants and boastful commoners, but also sometimes on poor tradesmen and farmers or devout Buddhist monks, right? They're kind of like... Equal opportunity Equal opportunity tricksters. Like they don't... They don't discern. They do exactly. <laughs> it's true equality. They don't care who they prey upon. <laughs> exactly. So they are very intelligent foxes who possess paranormal activities that increase as they get older and wiser. And they ha- they are known to possess very long lives and basically just get only more powerful as they get older. And according to Japanese yokai folklore, all foxes actually have the ability to shapeshift into human form. So anytime you see a fox, you can be like... Hey, buddy. We're, you know, like, I know you're up to something, basically. And But yeah, like, basically, in while some folk tales speak of Kitsune employing this human shift, shape-shifting ability to trick others, as foxes in folklore often do, other stories will portray them as faithful guardians, friends, and lovers. Foxes and humans lived close together in ancient Japan, and this companionship gave rise to legends about the creatures. If you've played Ghost of Tsushima, there's a whole thing about kitsune, little shrines that you go to and you pray to them, and there's a little fox that that takes you to the shrine, and then the little fox, t- you know, follows you there. And then after you're done praying, you can pet the fox, and it's it's just really cute because the main character is very much spiritually linked to foxes as well through his mother. So it's just it's it's really nice. So they living closely. So Kitsune have become closely associated with Inari or a Shinto kami or spirit, and basically serves as its messengers. That has really reinforced the fox's supernatural significance. Kitsune can also. Have have as many as nine tales. A greater number of tales indicates an older and more powerful kitsune, and some folk tales even say that a fox will only grow an additional tail after it's lived for 900 years. So assuming a nine tail, like a fox with nine tails, would be 900 years old. If it has nine tails, what would it be? 8,100? 8,100. Because it grows one extra tail after 900 years. No, after 100 years. Oh, after 100 years. years. Oh, okay. Sorry, every 100 years, yeah. Okay. But because of... (laughs) I mean, it's still impressive. Right. (laughs) And because of their potential power and influence, some people will make sacrifices to them as as like a deity. And conversely, foxes were often seen as witch animals, especially during the more superstitious Edo period from 1603 to 1867, and were thought more like goblins who could not be trusted, kind of like badgers and cats. There are two common kitsune classifications. There's the Zenko, who are literally good foxes. Um, They're benevolent celestial foxes, again, associated with Inari, who is one of the principal kami of Shinto. He's the kami, he or they, basically it can be a group or just one. The kami of foxes, fertility, rice, tea, sake, agriculture, industry, general prosperity, and worldly success, and also the patron of blacksmiths and protectors of warriors. 
So that's who the Zenko are associated with. The other one is the Yako, or the field, literally field foxes, or Nogitsune, who are mischievous and sometimes malicious. And then there's also one more that's more local, and it's called the Ninko, who are invisible and only perceived once they, a human has been possessed by one. As I said earlier, Kitsune may take on human forms, and it's an ability that is learned when it reaches a certain age, either depending on the folktale, 50 or 100. A fox must place reeds, a leaf, or a skull over its head in order to transform. Some common forms assumed include beautiful women, young girls, elderly men, occasionally young boys. But basically, the shapes are not limited by the fox's own age or gender, and kitsune can also duplicate the specific appearance of a person like a doppelganger or a kagemusha, basically just to mess with people or assume their form. Kitsune possess people in addition to shape-shifting as people. And so folklorist Lafcadio Hearn describes the condition of possession in glimpses of unfamiliar Japan as, strange is the madness of those into whom demon foxes enter. Sometimes they run naked, shouting through the streets. Sometimes they lie down and froth at the mouth and yelp as a fox yelps. And on some part of the body, the, po- uh, the possessed, a moving lump appears under the skin, which seems to have life of its own. Prick it with a needle and it glides instantly to another place. By no grasp can it be tightly compressed by a strong hand that it will not slip from under the fingers. Possessed folk are also said to speak and write languages of which they are totally ignorant to prior to possession. So as a side note, sometimes if you're possessed by a kitsune, you can go from being illiterate to literate. I mean... There are worse ways to learn languages. Then they eat only what foxes are believed to like, like tofu or aburage, aburage, which is used to make inari zushi. It's fried tofu. Azuki meshi and so on. They will eat a great deal, alleging that not uh, that not they, but the possessing foxes are hungry. This author also goes on to note that once freed from the possession, the victim will never again be able to eat tofu, azuki meshi, aburage, inari zushi, or any other foods favored by foxes. So it basically ruins... That's a bummer. Yeah. So oh, you learn a language, udon, but you lose the yeah. ability to eat tofu. And I just think about it, like, kitsune udon is, like, my favorite udon. Depictions of kitsune or people possessed by them may feature round white balls known as hoshinotama, or star balls. And tales would describe these glowing with kitsunebi, like a like fox spirit. Some stories identify them as magical jewels or pearls, and when not in human form or possessing a human, a kitsune keeps the ball in its mouth or carries it on its tail. Jewels are a common symbol of inari, and representations of sacred inari foxes with them, without them are rare. One belief is that when a kitsune changes shape, its hoshinotama holds a portion of its magical power. Another tradition is that the pearl represents the kitsune's soul. The kitsune will die if separated from it for too long. Those who obtain the ball may be able to extract a promise from the kitsune to help them in exchange for its return. For example, a 12th century tale describes a man using a fox's hoshinotama to secure a favor. The fox kind of snaps and says, hey, give me back my ball. But the man ignores its pleas until finally it says tearfully, it's like, all right, okay, you've got the ball, but you don't know how to keep it. It won't be any good to you. For me, it's a terrible loss. I'll tell you, if you don't give it back, I'll be your enemy forever. But if you do give it back, I will stick to you like a protector god. And so the man gives it back to him, and the fox uh, saves his life by leading him past a band of armed robbers. So basically, like, you get, if you can find a kitsune, or the hoshinotama, and the kitsune associated with it, then you can basically negotiate for a protector god for yourself. So, again... 
they are usually the trickster gods, but sometimes you can kind of like one up them and yeah. kind of put them in their place. But really, they're just there to just cause mischief and what? Yeah, they're just they're just good little babies. I like them. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So that's it for Kitsune. Yeah, so that's an overview of tricksters. Obviously, there's a ton more out there, so maybe there will be someday another episode yeah. on. Who's your favorite trickster? What are your favorite stories involving tricksters? Email spoopower at gmail.com. Yeah. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at spoopower. Tell us about it. Don't ask us if we want to clean our fox balls because we will block you. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> they keep finding us. I don't know us. why that keeps happening, but it does, and that's fine. <sighs> so, yeah, we hope you're doing great. We hope you're staying on the right side of tricksters. You know, we hope you're making good choices and not eating things that don't belong to you or having people steal your souls or, you know, all that good stuff. So be safe. Make good choices. Be safe. Leave some porridge out for your puck. Recording now. I'm recording now, too. Our other podcast, Snack Hour. Snack Hour. I'm, I mean, if we ever run out of spoopy stuff to if talk we about, about, we just pivot. Stuff, we have You're Welcome. We have Snack Hour. Basically, we could pull a DAL and have, like, three podcasts. We really could. And we could just <laughs> rotate through them every two weeks. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We'll be an anthology podcast, but instead of being an anthology where it's, like, a collection of stories on a topic, it's yeah. just a collection of topics yeah. with the same people. You can just clip this and put this at the end of the episode. I intend to. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, is that a podcast you want to listen to? <laughs> <sighs> Should we clap? Oh, right. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> I'm like, why aren't you saying, hey, Courtney? Yeah, All right. Okay. Three, Three, two, two one. one. Does it show that I've been by myself in the house for like a little over 24 hours and I'm losing my goddamn mind? <laughs> You're just happy that we're talking. I know, I'm like, a person! A person! (laughs) Hey, Courtney. Hey, Sasha. A person! (laughs) Damn it. All right. Zelda is behind me in the thing that holds my audio booth, and she just looked at me like, come on, Mom, how many of these have you done? Okay, all right, I can do this now. We're good.